Hello, my name is Vanessa Naish and I am a professional support consultant and arbitration practice manager here at Herbert Smith Freehills. I'm joined today by Andrew Cannon, a deputy head of our global arbitration practice and partner in our London office. Andrew, in today's podcast, we're going to briefly discuss the changes to the LCIA rules that have been recently released and which come into force on the 1st of October 2020. Now, you're obviously well-placed to talk to us about them as you're a counsellor on the LCIA European Users Council. Can we perhaps start by talking about the branding of this rule change? It's been announced by the LCIA as an update rather than a rewrite of the rules. And is that how you see the changes? Thank you, Vanessa. Well, the answer to your question obviously depends on your view of what updating entails. Personally, I think it probably is a fair summary of what has happened. We'll come on to a little more detail shortly, but there are relatively few big changes that are actually new per se. If you were to compare the 2014 and 2020 rules, you'd see quite a lot of markup in the text, but the vast majority of those changes are actually seeking to tidy up a few slightly archaic or strangely worded pieces of phraseology that have existed for a while or or that crept in with the 2014 rule change. For example, the use of cross-claims that came in in 2014 to encompass both counterclaims and cross-claims has been amended to specify both. The new rules also acknowledge the reality of communications and arbitral practice in 2020. Uh, there's no longer any provision for facts, for example, in Article 4. Article 4 also now provides for the electronic submission of the request and response as the default, and for communication in the arbitration to also be electronic, subject to direction from the LCIA court or tribunal to the contrary. And following that theme, we've also got amendments at Article 14 and 19 to allow for a tribunal to order remote or virtual hearings, uh, particularly helpful, of course, in the current climate, uh, and also for tribunals to sign their awards electronically and or in counterparts, unless the parties agree otherwise or the tribunal or LCIA court directs. There are some other changes that seek to make crystal clear some powers that arguably already existed for arbitrators under the rules and which arbitrators were reluctant to exercise. I assume you're talking about the changes to Article 14 and to 22 here. Yes, that's right. OK, that's really interesting. Now, while arguably these powers may have been there under the 2014 rules and earlier, the changes in Article 14 and, and 22 are fairly expansive and potentially have quite a significant impact on the process. I'd like to come back and look at those in a little bit more detail later, if you're happy with that. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. OK, so having set the scene, I'd like to start, if we may, with what you view as the big headline changes to the rules. Yeah. So, well, I would say there are broadly five headline items. The first, uh, tribunal secretaries. Second, keeping the annex on council conduct and the change to authorised representatives rather than legal representatives. Third, uh, increased clarity on the ability to issue a composite request and a response for multiple arbitrations. Fourth, expansion of the circumstances in which consolidation may be available. And finally, going back to your point here, uh, the wide tribunal discretion throughout the process and clarity around the ability summarily to dismiss certain claims. That's great, Andrew. Right, well, let's kick off with your first point, which was tribunal secretaries. Now, 
The LCIA had previously dealt with tribunal secretaries in Section 8 of its guidance notes to arbitrators. Do you know what prompted the move to dealing with it in the rules? Do you think that the English court's decision in the 2017 case of P and Q played a role? Thanks. Well, yes, arbitration moves pretty quickly as a practice area. Uh, Since 2014, there's been a realisation that the role of tribunal secretary needed to be formalised and that many of the requirements that applied to arbitrators also needed to apply to tribunal secretaries. But the LCIA provided some quite detailed guidance in the guidance note to deal with this in the meantime, but the rule refresh was an obvious chance to put that guidance on a more formal footing, which it has now done with the inclusion of the new Article 14a. The P&Q case that you mentioned was an application made to remove an entire tribunal under Section 24 of the English Arbitration Act on the basis of alleged over-delegation of their duties to their secretary. The court's decision was based on a review of the Act and, importantly, the LCIA rules from 1998. I'd say that the decision gives judicial backing to the LCIA's approach in this case and provides judicial support to the LCIA court's decision-making process on arbitrator challenges. Nothing about the judgment indicated a need for further action by the LCIA, uh, but even if it did, I'd argue that that action had already been taken by the LCIA rule revision in 2014 and changes to the note to arbitrators. Given this support, particularly following the LCIA's updated approach in the guidance I mentioned from 2017, it made sense to adopt that approach in a more formal sense. So I don't see any of the changes, and particularly the new Article 14a, as new in that sense, but rather as formalising LCIA current practice within the rules. The provision makes it clear that parties have to agree to the use of tribunal secretaries and that tribunal members must not delegate decision-making powers. There is also clarity about the need for tribunal secretaries to disclose any conflicts of interest and also that the obligation of confidentiality under Article 30 applies to the tribunal secretary. So not so much a change, but rather a a codification? Absolutely. Then the second headline item that I mentioned was around the LCIA's annex on conduct and the change in terminology around party representatives. I think it is surprising that we haven't seen many other arbitral institutions adopt any guidance on conduct for counsel or other representatives. The LCIA's annex in 2014 was extremely innovative and remains so. In my view, it's noteworthy the LCIA has kept the annex. It's a real testament to the strength of belief and the importance of these provisions within the LCIA and also to their effectiveness. In Article 18 of the 1998 rules, it was clear that a party could be represented by legal practitioners or any other representative. However, in 2014, that shifted to one or more authorised legal representatives. There was much discussion at the time about whether the LCIA had restricted party representation to lawyers only. And given that one of the key points of arbitration is flexibility, this wasn't ideal. So the rule change in 2020 has reverted to clarifying that representation can be legal or non-legal. But that legal or non-legal, the annex still applies. Thanks, Andrew. Now, you mentioned composite requests and response as your next point of note. Now, I assume that the change here has come about following the English court's decision in another 2017 case, this time the case of A versus B. And in that case, the English court held that the LCIA rules 2014 did not permit a party to commence a single arbitration in respect of disputes under multiple contracts. 
Rather, parties needed to issue multiple separate requests for arbitration and then seek to have those separate arbitrations consolidated. That's right, yes. And with the series of other arbitral rule changes by other institutions since 2012, which have allowed for the issue of consolidated requests in certain circumstances, this made the previous set of rules seem at odds with what clients and the arbitral community expected. So the changes to Article 1.2 and 2.2 allow for composite requests and responses to commence multiple arbitrations under certain circumstances at once. And although it should be noted that you will not automatically be commencing a consolidated arbitration, then whether or not those multiple arbitrations are then consolidated and resolved together will be down to the tribunal and or to the LCIA. Andrew, while we're on the topic of consolidated requests or composite requests, that segues quite neatly into your fourth point, which was the expansion of the circumstances in which consolidation may be possible. You're no doubt referring to new Article 22A here. Yes, that's right. So the LCIA rules have historically been viewed as, as being fairly restrictive in terms of consolidation under the rules themselves. Unless consolidation was sought under the same arbitration agreement or under compatible agreements with the same parties, uh, there was a tendency to think it had to be provided for in freehand drafting in the clause itself. Now, there have been a few tweaks to the rules here that have changed that position quite considerably. While the language looks very similar to the previous provisions in the 2014 rules, we've now got 22.72, which allows for the tribunal to consolidate arbitrations under compatible arbitration agreements between the same disputing parties or arising out of the same transaction or series of related transactions. And that's quite a big change. Being able to argue that arbitration agreements are compatible and arising out of the same transaction or related transactions opens up opportunities for consolidation in a much wider set of circumstances. We've also got an expansion of the powers of the LCAA court under Article 22.82 to consolidate prior to the appointment of the tribunal in similar circumstances. And then we have 22.73, which provides for a tribunal to conduct arbitrations concurrently in similar circumstances. The scope for these concurrent arbitrations is actually fairly narrow, though. It will require the same tribunal to have been appointed in each arbitration, which will, practically speaking, have required party agreement. And this will usually be in a sector or industry where concurrent arbitrations are common practice. So a fairly small tweak to the wording, but a much more modern and flexible provision that will be very useful, particularly alongside consolidated requests. Thanks, Andrew. Right, let's head back now to look at the changes to Article 14 and 22 that could be viewed as setting out for clarity powers that the tribunal has always had under the LCIA rules, but which tribunals have perhaps been reluctant to exercise. So do you agree that Article 14 and 22 do that? Or do you think that the LCIA has gone further? That's an interesting question, Lessa. Thanks. So Let's look at what has happened in each of these articles. Article 14 starts by moving things around a little. We have the general duties of the tribunal first, moving text from 14.6 to 14.1, though it's worth noting that these general duties are unchanged from the 2014 rules. And then, key in my view, is new Article 14.2, which mirrors old 14.7 in making it clear that the arbitral tribunal shall have the widest discretion to discharge these general duties, again, unchanged. What follows at new 14.5 and 14.6 is clarifying what this widest discretion 
entails in terms of procedure, i.e. shortening timescales, limiting evidence, restricting pleadings, adopting technology, allowing for a remote hearing. I don't think anyone would find it particularly controversial. These provisions would also enable an arbitral tribunal to introduce a bespoke expedited procedure if that was required by the parties or the circumstances of the case. What is more innovative and potentially more controversial are the provisions at Article 22.8. These allow for a tribunal to determine that any claim, defence, counterclaim, cross-claim, defence to counterclaim or defence to cross-claim is manifestly outside the jurisdiction of the arbitral tribunal or is inadmissible or manifestly without merit and where appropriate to issue an order or award to that effect, a so-called early determination. Back in 2014, the English court confirmed that parties could agree to summary dismissal in their arbitration clause in the case of Travis Cole restructured holdings against SR Global Fund. Since then, we've seen a few attempts by other institutions to provide for this in their rules. It was a very obvious addition for the LCIA in any rule change, particularly given the significant and increasing use of LCIA rules by financial institutions who have historically chosen English court jurisdiction over arbitration for the ability to apply for summary judgment. Now, whether this is truly a confirmation of existing powers or is a, an expansion of tribunal powers will very much depend on your view of how far tribunal discretion extends in terms of summary dismissal without express provision in the rules for it. But the LCIA itself certainly views this as a clarification rather than a new provision. Thanks, Andrew. Now that we've dealt with the five big ticket items from your perspective, I'd like to ask you about one further point, and that's the LCIA's approach to the 2016 case of Gerald Metals. Just for the sort of interest of our listeners, Gerald Metals was about the availability of court-ordered interim relief, and it caused quite a stir in 2016 when the English court found that the test of urgency under Section 44.3 of the English Arbitration Act would not be satisfied unless the matter was so urgent that there was insufficient time to form an expedited tribunal or appoint an emergency arbitrator or an expedited tribunal or emergency arbitrator could not exercise the necessary powers. The judge in that case held that if an expedited tribunal could be constituted or an emergency arbitrator appointed within the relevant timescale and the expedited tribunal or emergency arbitrator could practically exercise the necessary powers, then the test of urgency under Section 44 of the Act would not be satisfied and the court would not exercise its discretion to grant urgent relief. And that was an LCIA rules arbitration, which caused a degree of consternation amongst the community. And I just wondered what the LCIA had done to address this decision in its revision of the rules. Thank you, Vanessa. Well, it's a, a really interesting case that has been much discussed. And it's a difficult point. Article 9b, as set out in the 2014 rules, clearly stated that the availability of an emergency arbitrator shall not prejudice any party's right to apply to a state court or other legal authority for any interim or conservatory measures before the formation of the arbitral tribunal. And it shall not be treated as an alternative to or substitute for the exercise of such right. Now, the court uh, in Gerald Metals, Mr. Justice Leggett, who gave the judgment, did consider this specific point in, in his judgment. He found that the rules make it clear 
that Article 9b is not intended to prevent a party from exercising a right to apply to the court, for example, under Section 44 of the Arbitration Act, but that this does not prevent the powers of the court on such an application from being limited as a result of the existence of Article 9b. Now, in my view, the LCIA has taken a, a light touch in its changes to the rules to address the case. Those changes are found in old Article 9.12, now Article 9.13, and Article 25.3. You'll see that the language here has been simplified and has endeavoured to confirm the availability of court-ordered interim relief in certain circumstances. So, the big question, does it resolve the problem of Gerald Metals? Well, that's really hard to say. As an arbitral institution, the LCIA can attempt more clearly to signpost how its rules should be interpreted by the court. But when all is said and done, Section 44 provides for the court's discretion in this area, not for the discretion of the institution. It remains up to the court to decide how it applies and construes the act alongside the arbitral rules. As a result, it's not really clear what more the LCIA could have done to signpost its own intention. Uh, the impact of the changes will depend entirely on how the court approaches the interaction between the new LCIA rules and the Act on this point. Thank you for that, Andrew. That was really interesting. And thank you very much for your time as well. For anyone listening to this podcast who is interested in finding out more and also exploring some of the smaller changes, please do read our blog article on the LCIA Rules 2020. You can also contact us on an email address, which is arbitrationinfo at hsf.com for a copy of our LCIA step-by-step -step guide or our arbitration rules comparison table, both of which have been updated to take into account the new LCIA rules. Thank you very much for joining us.